For the third time in a little over a century and a half, the House Judiciary Committee has voted articles of impeachment against the President. So there's that. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN in Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening pleasure on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us on, yes, another historic day in these United States of America. Coming up, however, uh, I'm, I'm looking very much forward to speaking with Professor Philip B. Stark of the University of California, Berkeley. Professor Stark is the inventor of a post-election audit protocol that you may have heard of. I say may because, in truth... Well, we don't talk about it much here, uh, post-election audits, because I'm not a fan of manual post-election hand-counted samples as a way of ensuring that computer tabulators were correct for a number of reasons that I hope to discuss with uh, with Stark. But uh, those post-election risk-limited audits, as invented by Professor Stark, the RLA protocol, are what many jurisdictions around the country are now claiming to be relying on to ensure that electronically tabulated results actually reflect the intent of voters, even on unverifiable computer-marked paper ballot summaries created by touchscreen voting systems that are now proliferating the nation in advance of the critical 2020 election. Well, the problem with that Stark himself says that such manual tabulations of computer-marked ballots even using his own risk-limiting audit protocol, are actually meaningless. Since the voter intent cannot be known with those types of uh, touchscreen-marked ballots, and he is angry enough at groups like VerifiedVoting.org, the long-respected, at least until recently, e-voting watchdog, for supporting RLAs on untrustworthy ballots, that he resigned 
from Verified Voting's Board of Directors recently and called on other well-respected computer scientists, cybersecurity, and voting machine experts on the board to do the same. Uh, Professor Stark, who sent me his letter of resignation uh, a few weeks ago, as he sent it to Verified Voting uh, while he was on a ship in the Red Sea. He's finally back in the country and he will be joining us momentarily. But as I say, it is another very historic day here in the U.S. After some 14 hours of what we will call debate on the U.S. House Judiciary Committee on Thursday, even though it mostly consisted of uh, Democrats explaining undisputed and independently verifiable facts, in support of two articles of impeachment against Donald J. Trump and the Republicans largely offering lies and procedural complaints in hopes of delaying the inevitable as long as possible, the House Judiciary Committee reconvened at 10 a.m. on Friday morning for what was a quick party-line vote on two articles of impeachment, citing abuse of power and obstruction of Congress by the president during and after his pressure campaign on Ukraine, in which he withheld a White House meeting and nearly $400 million in military assistance to force the Ukrainian president to announce uh, announce investigations against Trump's expected 2020 election rival and an unfounded theory that Ukraine, not Russia, interfered in the 2016 election. Both articles of impeachment were approved, By the House, along uh, the House Judiciary, I should say, along a straight 23 to 17 party line vote, after which Judiciary Chair Gerald Nadler gave a very brief statement to media in the Capitol building. Today, today is a solemn and sad day. For the third time in a little over a century and a half, the House Judiciary Committee has voted articles of impeachment against the president for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The House will act expeditiously. Thank you. If the uh, full House approves of these articles of impeachment as uh, currently scheduled for a vote in the coming uh, week before the Christmas recess, Donald Trump would become only the third president in our nation's 243-year history to face a trial on articles of impeachment in the U.S. Senate, where 100 U.S. senators will become the jury who will hear the arguments from both House prosecutors and the president's team of lawyers to determine whether Donald Trump should be, in fact, removed from office. But, of course, uh, before Friday's solemn vote in the House Judiciary was even held, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, who oversees the Senate, and controls a majority of the senators who will serve as jurors, was on Fox News on Thursday saying out loud that he fully intends to rig that trial on behalf of the Republican president. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell openly admitted on Fox News on Thursday evening that he has no intention of giving impeachment a fair shake in the Senate, During an appearance on Sean Hannity's show on Fox, McConnell said Republicans' position on impeachment would be no different than the White House's position and said he has been coordinating, or perhaps I should say colluding, with White House lawyers on the issue. We'll be working through this process, hopefully in a fairly short period of time, in total coordination 
uh, with the White House Counsel's Office and the people who are representing the President in the well of the Senate. Everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with the White House Counsel. There will be no difference between the President's position and our position as to uh, how to handle this. There's no chance the President's going to be removed from office. My hope is that there won't be a single Republican who votes uh, for either of these articles of impeachment. And, Sean, it wouldn't surprise me if we got one or two Democrats. So uh, there you have Mitch McConnell, who is essentially, as someone described, the foreman of the jury, talking about coordinating with the accused, the president of the United States. McConnell's open admission of allegiance to the White House on the process firms up the New Republican effort to rush through impeachment in the House under the belief that Trump will get what they are calling a fair trial in the U.S. Senate, by which they mean a rigged trial with a predetermined result in which a majority of the jurors are now openly colluding with the accused for what could be called anything but an actual fair trial on the merits of the president's alleged abuse of office and obstruction of Congress. That trial, should the House approve the articles as scheduled for debate in the coming week, would theoretically take place just after the first of the year, the first of the 2020 presidential election year, I should add. So uh, no doubt much more on that in coming days as the process moves forward and after Thursday's election. uh, Also in uh, in Great Britain, where the Conservative Party reportedly trounced its Labour Party opposition, in what conservative Prime Minister Boris Johnson is describing as a mandate to remove the UK from the European Union as soon as next month. And yet one more earth-rattling realignment of previously stabilizing post-World War II institutions and norms in an era that has given rise to wrecking crews like a Boris Johnson in the UK UK, and a Donald J. Trump here in the U.S., But past performance, as they say, is no guarantee of future earnings. And to that end, some of us who believe in the ultimate success of democracy as a road, if sometimes a very long and winding one, toward peace, stability and equality for all, as opposed to chaos, inequity and despair, some of us are still turning toward U.S. elections as a way out of this mess, even if it may not be easy And means that all of us, yes, all of us, must do our part if the promise of democracy is actually to work as hoped. To that end, we turn to, yes, Mitch McConnell's Kentucky today, where he himself will be on the ballot next November. For one, just one example of how democracy is supposed to work and how it sometimes doesn't. Following the otherwise very red bluegrass state's recent gubernatorial election in which their unpopular Republican Governor Matt Bevin was unseated by Democrat Andy Bashir, A tale of two governors on our long and winding road towards justice is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay right there. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. The long and winding road that leads 
Well, it may be a long road, but uh, apparently not long enough for me to uh, say hi to you, Desi Doyen, <laughs> in the past segment. Sorry about That's that. That's quite all Hope right. Hope you're doing okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm just excited to get to Phil Stark. That's I know. All. all right. The family of a man pardoned by Kentucky's now, thankfully, former Republican Governor Matt Bevin for a homicide and other crimes in a fatal 2014 Knox County home invasion raised $21,500 at a political fundraiser last year to retire debt from Bevin's 2015 gubernatorial campaign. The brother and sister-in-law of the offender, again, uh, who was charged with homicide, his name is Patrick Brian Baker, the brother and sister-in-law also gave $4,000 to Bevin's campaign on the day of the fundraiser themselves, according to the Kentucky Registry of Election Finance database. The Commonwealth's attorney, Jackie Steele, who prosecuted Patrick Baker and other defendants for the 2014 death of Donald Mills, told the Courier-Journal that it would be an understatement to say, I am aggrieved by Bevin's pardon of this man. Steele identified Patrick Baker as the brother of Eric Baker, who hosted the Bevan fundraiser at his Corbin home. The December 6 order to pardon the man was one of 428 pardons and commutations that Bevan issued since his narrow loss in December to Democrat Andy Bashir, who was sworn into office on Tuesday. The beneficiaries of those pardons included one offender convicted of raping a child, Another who hired a hitman to kill his business partner and a third who killed his parents. The uh, attorney Steele noted that Baker had served just two years of a 19 year sentence on his conviction for reckless homicide, robbery, impersonating a peace officer. That's right. He dressed up like a police officer for this home invasion, robbery and murder uh, and for tampering with evidence. Commonwealth attorney Steele who, uh, like Bevan, is a Republican, also cited the fact that two of Baker's co-defendants on this crime are still in prison. Well, I guess it's their own fault for not throwing a fundraiser for the corrupt, horrible, thankfully former Tea Party Republican governor, Matt Bevan. Same crime, and they are still in jail for it. But the guy whose family gave money... The, the family of a, a man who was a convicted murderer just two years ago, he is now free... Because who says Republicans aren't tough on crime and supporters of law enforcement? Am I right? <laughs> They're only tough on crime if you don't have the money to pay them off. Apparently so. I'll spare you the details on the child rapist and the other killers that Bevan has set free for now because I want to allow plenty of time for my next guest. But the point here is that, once again, yes, elections matter. Voting matters, which is why some are fighting so hard to keep many people from doing it. And nothing shows that fact better than what the uh, Republican Bevan did on his way out the door after his narrow loss in an otherwise deep red state last month and what the new Democratic governor just did immediately after taking office this week. Kentucky's newly Democratic governor, Andy Bashir, sworn into office on Tuesday, signed an executive order on Thursday restoring the vote and the right to hold public office to more than 140,000 residents 
who have completed sentences for nonviolent felonies. With that move, Kentucky now joins a fast-growing movement to return voting rights to former felons, leaving Iowa, hello Iowa, as the only state that strips all former felons of the right to cast a ballot. Since 1997, 24 states have approved some type of measure to ease voting bans, according to the Sentencing Project. Kentucky joins Virginia, Florida, Nevada, and other states that have extended voting rights in the last few years. Governor Bashir said the order would apply to more than half of the estimated 240,000 Kentuckians with felonies in their past, as well as those who complete their sentences in the future. While he believes in justice, he said, quote, I also believe in second chances. Speaking about this news in an interview over at Leo Weekly today, election and criminal justice expert Daniel Nashanian, who we, uh, we had on the show uh, just a few weeks ago on a related topic. He's better known as Daniel on Twitter. He said that uh, hundreds of thousands of Kentuckians have been stripped of the right to vote for life. And that is more than nine percent of the state's adult population. The racial inequity in who gets convicted of a felony and so who loses the right to vote is just staggering, he adds. In fact, this may be one of the single most staggering statistics in U.S. politics. More than one in four black adults in Kentucky were stripped of the right to vote for life because of these rules. And that's why Governor Bashir's order today is so important, he says. It's going to massively change this landscape and significantly expand the electorate. He says we're talking about roughly 4% of the state's adult population regaining the right to vote in one stroke of the pen. Well, Mitch McConnell, who is on the ballot next year in Kentucky, is probably none too happy about that. Now we just have to see if we can get former violent offenders, again, former violent offenders, to get their rights back as well. And yes, current offenders who also should have the right to vote, as we discussed with uh, Nishanian on that show a few weeks ago. But we will take what we can get for now in another day versus night example of Republicans versus Democrats these days, at least in the governor's office in Kentucky. We could see a lot more such changes next year, but only if folks turn out to vote and are allowed to vote next year and are able to cast a ballot that is counted and counted accurately and in a way that we can all know that it has been counted accurately. That point is very much at the center of a uh, number of ongoing battles by election integrity advocates, one of whom... Professor Philip B. Stark, the inventor of the post-election risk-limiting audit protocol, joins us next on the heels of his angry resignation from the once-respected verified voting organization. I will explain all of that and more right after this. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Uh-huh. You can't count on me now. 
back one, two, three. I'll be there. I'll be here. And I know when I need Welcome back it, to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Though don't count on me to count everywhere. Don't count on... I'm counting on you guys to count everywhere, to oversee elections everywhere. So in since the November 5, 2019 off-year elections last month, and in fact long prior to that, we've been reporting on this program often exclusively often far too exclusively, on the failures of brand-new 100% unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking devices, or BMDs, that are now being deployed in a number of key battleground states and counties around the nation, including the entire state of Georgia, where they failed those systems during municipal elections last month in four of the six counties, where the new touchscreen image cast BMD systems made by Dominion Voting were being piloted for use across the entire state next year in the presidential election versus simpler, cheaper, and actually verifiable paper ballot systems. On November 5, the electronic poll books that allow those systems to work at all failed in several counties, preventing some voters from voting at all, and others were forced to wait. Uh, for up to an hour during a sparsely attended municipal election. A similar system is being deployed next year here in Los Angeles County, the nation's most populous, larger than 41 U.S. states. With brand new, never tested, unverifiable touchscreen voting systems being forced on voters at the polls for the first time, replacing our old hand-marked paper ballot systems next year, just in time for the critical 2020 presidential elections. Similarly unverifiable systems are set for use in more than a dozen states across the country next year, including North Carolina, which I hope to discuss in the coming days as there is an effort there by election integrity experts to prevent the state's planned rollout of the failed express vote system made by ESNS, the nation's largest and frankly, most failed private voting system vendor. This effort in this uh, closely divided battleground state's largest and most Democratic-leaning county is being challenged by uh, cybersecurity experts there, but we'll get to that in the days ahead. And these systems are also coming to the key battleground state of Pennsylvania, which Donald Trump reportedly flipped from blue to red in 2016, barely, for the first time in decades on the state's old, unverifiable touchscreen systems. Well, they're getting new ones now in the Keystone State. The ExpressVote XL system, which is also made by ESNS, and the recent rollout during municipal elections last month in Northampton County and in Philadelphia did not go well. As we've been reporting over the past month and as Washington Post seems to have finally noticed today with the filing of a lawsuit by election integrity experts to block the use of these systems. Joseph Marks at the Post writes, election security advocacy groups are suing the state of Pennsylvania today to stop some counties from using controversial voting machines they say are vulnerable to hacking by Russia and other adversaries in 2020. The suit shared exclusively with the Cybersecurity 202, that's uh, Joseph Mark's column in the, in the Post, comes just weeks after these particular machines had technical issues and went haywire 
and called the wrong winner in a county judge's race in November. That, broadcast listeners will recall, was the election in which the ultimately winning candidate was shown as having received zero votes in a whole bunch of precincts with an overall total of something like 160 votes total on the brand new unverifiable ballot marking device voting systems which spits out a computer-marked paper summary card that voters are supposed to verify, but as studies show, they rarely, if ever, do, and when they do, the majority of those people fail to notice if the computer has actually changed their votes. It wasn't 160 votes total that this candidate got. It was actually more than 22,000 votes. The groups who filed suit today say that hackers could do far worse to these election machines if they tried. Concerns about hacking are supersized in Pennsylvania, Marks reports, a battleground state that could be vital to determining the next president. The ExpressVote XL machine designed by election systems and software, that's ESNS, are being used in three counties that account for about 17 percent of the state's registered voters including Philadelphia County, the largest in the state. That's more than enough to tip a close election. Susan Greenhall, a recent guest on this program from the National Election Defense Coalition, one of the groups that brought the lawsuit with Pennsylvania residents on Friday, said Pennsylvania is going to be under a microscope in 2020. It needs to have voting systems that are demonstrably secure, trustworthy and auditable. This is just the latest lawsuit by election integrity advocates, voting system experts and some cybersecurity professionals seeking to force states and counties to abandon these machines that they say do not provide a sufficient paper trail to make sure that votes were tallied correctly. The plaintiffs are asking a judge to bar the electronic machines from Pennsylvania's party primaries in April of next year, which would likely force the state to use hand-marked paper ballots. Oh, the horror. Which activists say are the most secure option, according to the Post. Well, actually, it's not just activists, Washington Post. It's Pretty much every cybersecurity expert in the world who says that hand-marked paper ballots are the most secure option, but activists, sure. The new Pennsylvania lawsuit details numerous ways that hackers could compromise the machines to change an election outcome or sow widespread mistrust among voters. They could, for example, break into easily accessible administrator panels and reprogram the machines or they could trick the ballot printers to alter votes after the voters has supposedly reviewed them. The machines are also prone to malfunctioning and make it hard to verify that votes are being recorded accurately, according to the plaintiffs. And as I have noted here on this program, there's an even simpler way to quote unquote hack an election on such systems. If people simply report that the machines have misprinted their votes, whether that is true or not, it could result in chaos as machines are removed from use with no paper ballots on hand to allow voters to actually vote. And it would certainly cause a loss of confidence in the results, whether such loss of confidence was merited or not. It seems to simply be asking for trouble. Now, one key piece of evidence in the lawsuit is the Technical issues from the first time that the machines were used in Northampton County last month. The machines dramatically miscounted the votes, as I have noted. The bad tally for the local judges race was evident on election night. It forced a 
well, what the Post is calling a recount, which relied on the computer-marked paper ballots, which experts argue cannot be known to actually reflect the intent of the voters. Despite that, the state and ESNS insist that the correct winner in that judge's race, who actually, as I noted, received more than 22,000 votes as opposed to just 164, was ultimately confirmed by the machines and a tally of the computer-marked paper ballot summaries. But how do we know? The failure was a technical malfunction caused by bad programming, according to ESNS in a news conference on Thursday, which Susan Greenhall was highly dubious about in her response to it on Twitter that followed. A spokesperson for ESNS declined to comment on the lawsuit filed on Friday, but said that the ExpressVote XL, quote, has been thoroughly tested and proven to be secure and accurate. As states vary in their responses to the hacking threat, citizens are increasingly turning to the courts to challenge the security of their voting machines. Pennsylvania is already facing a separate legal challenge to the ExpressVote XL machines brought by 2016 Green Party candidate Jill Stein, who says that the machines actually violate a settlement that she reached with the state to end her demands for a recount back in 2016. Kevin Skoglin, the chief technologist for Citizens for Better Elections, another plaintiff in the suit and another recent guest on this program, says there's a real debate going on right now in American society about what facts you can trust, and that extends to our elections. It certainly does. He says we need to agree on the facts about elections. The losers and their supporters need to know that they lost fair and square and winners need to be confident that they really won. Well, there's an idea. And a number of states and, and voting advocates claim they have the answer to that concern. They claim that manual post-election spot checks of a sampling of ballots particularly using a scientific protocol called the Risk Limiting Audit, or RLA, will ensure that votes, whether they are cast on hand-marked paper ballots or computer-marked paper ballots, are tabulated accurately, even though they are tabulated most often, yes, by hackable and error-prone optical scan computer systems. But the RLA protocol calls for them to be counted, at least some of them, by hand. But they have at least one small problem with that claim. The inventor of the risk-limiting audit protocol, Professor Philip B. Stark of the University of California, Berkeley, says that RLAs carried out on computer-marked paper ballot summaries are, quote, meaningless because they cannot be known to reflect the voters' intent. That insistence by the inventor of RLAs, after all, and the fact that otherwise respected election integrity groups like VerifiedVoting.org are now inaccurately citing RLAs carried out in Georgia and Pennsylvania after the failed election days last month as proof that results were tabulated as per voter intent, that has led Phil Stark to resign from Verified Voting's board of directors, charging in a scathing resignation letter that, quote, verified voting has lost its way, as demonstrated by their 
providing cover for inherently untrustworthy voting systems and the officials who bought them, the companies that make them, and any officials who might contemplate buying them in the future by conducting risk-limiting audits of untrustworthy paper records, creating the false and misleading impression that relying on untrustworthy paper for an RLA can confirm election outcomes. Stark's letter concludes by charging that uh, for well over a year, verified voting has been doing things that contradict and undermine my research, my publications, my expert reports, and my public testimony. Whatever good verified voting might be doing on other fronts, I cannot continue to support the organization. Before he then goes on to call on other members of the board to consider resigning as well. Joining us now is Philip B. Stark. He's the professor of statistics and associate dean of mathematical and physical sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. He works on inference, risk and uncertainty quantification in physical, biological and social sciences. And if you know what all of that means, you might be a professor, too. His uh, method for auditing elections are uh, now in law in six states. He currently serves on the board of advisors for the U U.S. Elections Assistance Commission which he has yet to resign from, but I'll work on him. He served on uh, California Secretary of State Deborah Bowen's post-election audit standards working group and joins us now. Oh, Professor, I am delighted to have you here on uh, on the broadcast for the first time. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Brad. You, uh, you sent me your verified voting resignation letter about two weeks ago or so when you were actually, I think, out on the Red Sea somewhere, so you were unable to join me until now. Uh, but what has been the response that you have received from the leadership at Verified Voting uh, and your colleagues on the, on the board of directors there, many of whom, by the way, we have been guests on this show many times over the years. They're excellent, uh, many of them cybersecurity experts. What have you heard back from Verified Voting uh, in regard to your stand on how they are um, colluding, if you will, on uh, on phony uh, risk-limiting audits. Um, I don't want to betray any trust here for personal communications. Mm -hmm. um, the president of uh, Verified Voting, Marion Schneider, published a blog piece uh, shortly after I resigned, um, and uh, Verified Voting retracted a tweet <clears throat> that had claimed that uh, risk cleaning audits or audits to be conducted uh, in Pennsylvania would confirm outcomes when they suffered uh, from the same flaw that the uh, the audits in Georgia did. I think in general, you know, the, the, the board and I are sorry to part ways, and I, I wish that there were a way to stay with the organization, mm -hmm. and I would gladly go back if they uh, revised their uh, public position with regard to what audits of an untrustworthy paper trail can possibly accomplish. And I know that some of them uh, agree with you because some of them have said so publicly. Uh, you've worked with some of them publicly. Also, some of them have spoken to me privately to say the same thing. But basically, your uh, resignation letter charges that the statements made by verified voting lauding uh, these recent risk-limiting audits, uh, which I think verified voting actually worked on in states like Georgia and Pennsylvania, have resulted in what you call a whitewashing of inherently untrustworthy elections by overclaiming what applying RLA procedures to an untrust untrustworthy paper trail 
can accomplish. You write that that sets back election integrity and you charge that this is security theater, not election integrity. A couple of questions on this here, obviously. Isn't, first off, isn't a check of computer tabulated results any check, a manual check, better than no check at all, which is how elections are currently carried out in the bulk of states and counties across the country. They run them through an optical scanner. Whatever the numbers come out, those are the numbers that are, uh, are you know, made to be the official results. Uh, absolutely. I think we should audit anything that we can audit and that there's a, a much wider scope of things we should be auditing, including eligibility determinations and uh, signature verification and uh, ballot design and things like that. The question isn't whether we should audit, it's what auditing can establish. Mm -hmm. By definition, you know, what is a risk-limiting audit? It, it's any procedure which, if the reported outcome is wrong, the procedure has a high probability of correcting the reported outcome before it becomes final. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're applying a, a procedure to an untrustworthy paper trail, no, no audit can make that guarantee. Uh, the way that a risk-limiting audit can make the guarantee is by having a large chance of leading to a full hand count of the paper trail if the reported outcome doesn't accurately reflect the paper trail, meaning meaning the, mm -hmm. the reported winners are not the winners who would be found by an accurate manual tally of the votes. So uh, that recourse, that ability to figure out what really happened by looking at the whole paper trail by hand, mm -hmm. uh, will not tell you what really happened if the paper trail you're looking at can't be trusted to reflect what voters did and what voters saw on the screens and what voters intended. So that that's kind of where we are. Now, we can use procedures, risk-limiting audit procedures, mm -hmm. and apply them to untrustworthy paper, and that can tell us whether tabulation errors in, um, you know, totaling the votes in that pile of paper mm -hmm. uh, led, were big enough to cause the wrong candidate to appear to win, mm -hmm. but they can't tell us who the right candidate really is. They can't tell us what, whether, you know, who, who should have won, and they can't, they can't correct errors that affect the paper trail itself. So they can they can uh, they can tell you whether the optical scan systems tabulated those computer marked ballots correctly, but they can't tell you whether uh, the intent of the voters is actually reflected in in the results. There's no way of knowing because we can't know if the voters have actually verified those computer marked uh, ballot summaries that come out from these touchscreen machines. Well, it, it's a little worse than that. So let, let me try to first make it a little bit more abstract, mm -hmm. um, and then we'll and then we'll get it a little bit more complicated. Okay. Um, the risk limiting audit checks the tabulation of the paper. There is no procedure that can check whether ballot marking devices accurately mark the paper. Mm -hmm. um, pre pre election logic and accuracy testing is known to. I mean, if it finds a problem, it finds a problem. Right. But if it doesn't find a problem, that doesn't mean there isn't a problem. Right. Post-election procedures applied to the pile of paper or whatever can't tell. Uh, so inspecting the, the code on the devices can't tell because malware can be programmed to do its dirty business and then erase itself. The only mechanism that there is to discover that there is a problem with how the machines are marking ballots is voters being alert, noticing problems, reporting problems, and then being taken seriously by the election officials, the poll workers, whoever, when they report problems. Now, this is the essential flaw in the security of ballot marking devices. Only the voter is in a position to notice a problem, mm -hmm. but the system doesn't give the voter 
any evidence the voter can take to somebody else to show that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be the voter's word against the machine. Right. So you can say, I really intended to vote for Abraham Lincoln. This isn't a vote for Abraham Lincoln. The machine cheated. It's like, well, how do I know you didn't just push the wrong place on the screen? Mm-hmm. There's nothing the voter can do to prove that. Now, uh, so election officials are then in a position of if voters complain, they either can say, well, that was probably voter error. Yeah, I haven't heard very many complaints. I'm going to consider the election okay. Or the only other option is to run a new election. There's nothing that they could do to yep. figure out which votes were affected, which ballots were affected, who really won. I, now, and that's one of the reasons I pointed that out during my intro there, because this seems like an incredibly dangerous a system to use for exactly that reason a if they do go wrong or b if they don't go wrong but people claim they do there's really no way of telling the difference exactly so they're they're quite they're completely vulnerable to crying wolf mm-hmm. if an election official you know trusts public uh complaints that uh their votes were altered or contests were missing or this or that um then their only recourse is to run a new election and that opens the possibility for people uh, colluding to cry wolf and, uh, mm-hmm. and have, a, have an election invalidated. But uh, in the other direction, the incentives are stacked in favor of the election official saying, well, probably just voter error, um, we're going to let it stand. Um, and we have the recent example, which you just mentioned, from Northampton, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. where the machines obviously malfunctioned, uh, grossly malfunctioned, uh, including thousands of votes being cast for a voter instruction message, not even a candidate. And yet the election officials and the voting machine manufacturers are claiming that just by retabulating the paper that was printed by technology that that malfunctioned big time, Mm -hmm. uh, they can figure out who really won. And it's just, it's farce. And and this is the problem. I mean, because uh, Verified Voting org, which is a group that uh, I have respected, I've worked with in various ways uh, uh, for many years, that they are throwing in with the idea that RLAs can somehow protect against uh, these sorts of problems on these ballot on these BMD ballot marking device systems. But it's not just verified voting; it is vendors who are citing, well, you can always use an RLA afterwards and you'll find out if these things are accurate. It is elections officials. I've had people here in Los Angeles, the registrar of voters out here, Dean Logan, who has cited, oh, we're going to do risk-limiting audits afterwards. So if you're worried about these touchscreen computer ballots, you don't have to worry because we're going to be using RLAs afterwards to make sure everything reflects voter intent. All of these people, verified voting, these uh, state election officials, these vendors, you argue, uh, Philip Stark, they are all wrong about your protocol and what it can and can't do. Well, uh, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, First of all, I I know that a number of the verified voting uh, board members and Mm -hmm. advisory board members agree with me. Mm -hmm. Some of the confusion comes with, you know, what what can a risk-limiting audit in principle check and correct? Mm-hmm. Um, all that it can check and correct is the tabulation, but checking and correcting the tabulation is enough to check and correct the outcome if what is being tabulated is trustworthy. And so the papers I've written on risk-limiting audits emphasize the fact that first you need to establish whether the paper trail is trustworthy. If it isn't, all bets are off. So, no aspect of a risk limiting audit checks whether the paper was marked correctly. It mm-hmm. only checks whether the paper was tabulated correctly. No aspect of a risk limiting audit by itself 
determines whether the paper trail was taken care of well or whether, you know, any ballots fell off a truck or fell on a truck, Mm -hmm. um, et cetera. Physical security of the paper trail is still, you know, central to all of this, and it's not not automatic. Mike, you know, I, I think that people who have their heads wrapped around this understand that that's the case. The conflict is around whether... Uh, you can still say that applying a risk-limiting audit to, say, universal use ballot marking device output or to even a hand-marked uh, paper ballot uh, paper trail that hasn't been taken care of well, hasn't mm-hmm. been kept demonstrably secure, um, it, 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 it verifies outcomes. And I, I think it should be pretty obvious to everybody that it doesn't verify outcomes. All it does is verify the tabulation, and therefore it isn't, strictly speaking, a risk-limiting audit. And, you know, and yet I see people, and we'll get to some of my personal concerns with these post-election audits in, in a second, but, well, you note in your in your resignation letter to verified voting, you cite their support for Georgia and Pennsylvania and the uh, RLAs that were carried out there, and you charge that that has done damage to a case trying to hold Georgia's Secretary of State accountable for historical neglect of election integrity and its ill-advised decision to buy universal-use BMDs. Now, that is a a lawsuit that we've long discussed on this program with plaintiff uh, Marilyn Marks of the Coalition of Good Governance, in which I believe you are an expert witness on that uh, that case. Am I right, uh, Philip? I've submitted a number of declarations in okay. the case. Yes, so, I, I haven't uh, testified in person. Okay. I, I don't. I haven't been qualified by the judge as an expert witness in the case, but I've submitted a number of declarations. But, but how do these claims, by verified voting and by the Secretary of State of Georgia, and so forth, uh, that uh, oh everything worked out just fine? How does that damage uh, the case that challenges e- even the use of these unverifiable uh, uh, touchscreen voting systems in uh, in Georgia? Well, uh, the defendant, the Secretary of State's uh, office, in its most recent court filing, cites the fact that at, at the time it was about to do a risk-limiting audit pilot with verified voting mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in its pleadings. There have also been press releases by the Secretary of State's office saying that the, uh, the risk-limiting audit pilot showed that uh, their voting system worked perfectly, um, uh, which in principle it can't. It does absolutely nothing to check whether the votes were recorded accurately on the paper. Moreover, the particular kind of risk-limiting audit uh, procedure that was applied is called ballot polling, Um, and it, in fact, doesn't even check how any particular ballot or ballots were tabulated. It does absolutely nothing whatsoever to check the equipment. Mm. It just gives you some confidence that if you were to hand-count the pile of paper, you would get the same uh, announced winners. It doesn't check the voting system. This is all so frustrating because this is already such a complicated issue. And now you have uh, people who I consider to be good guys uh, in verified voting uh, doing something that is horribly misleading. And one huge frustration that I now personally have with verified voting is their verifier tool, Philip. Uh, it has been uh, indispensable for years. Uh, it illustrates essentially which you know jurisdictions use which type of voting systems. But last I checked... They're now describing counties that use 100% unverifiable touchscreen BMD systems as paper ballot counties. 
Uh, that, to me, is deplorable. It is wildly misleading for media folks who use that tool, who will use that tool to report on the 2020 elections. I've let them know about that concerns. That concern. Uh, a, do you share that concern? And B, did that ever come up in discussion with the board of directors in your mailing list? Because I, this is going to be disastrous next year, Professor, uh, unless they change this over at uh, Verified Voting. They're the only ones who actually track this information. So uh, I have a vague recollection that there were plans to uh, nuance the verifier and uh, indicate the difference between hand-marked paper ballots, uh, ballot-marking device-marked paper ballots, uh, and even to show a breakdown of which particular ballot-marking devices were in use in different places. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that plan is. I don't know what the, what the timing would be on rolling it out, and I don't know whether it's still the plan because I'm, I'm no longer uh, on the board. I, I, I mean, I, I feel like I want to defend the community a little bit mm-hmm. uh, around this. Um, for, you know, approaching two decades, uh, people have been clamoring for a paper record of the votes. And there's this, been this demand for paper, 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 because paper is durable, uh, paper is recountable, paper is tangible, uh, people can read it, mm-hmm. um, and so on. And what there hasn't been, at least what there hasn't been this clear unanimity around, is that not all paper is created equal. So we're in a situation where the voting system vendors have found the most lucrative paper option to offer the market, um, namely requiring everyone to use a ballot marking device when the pen would be a better option for probably the vast majority of voters um, and, uh, you know, wouldn't be hackable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think it's just, you know, the, the community, they're, they're Many people in the community who get it, um, there are some people who don't yet get it. Uh, and I you know, think that in the coming years, it's going to become more obvious to everybody that the difference between uh, a pen and a ballot marking device is profound. And, and let me just uh, push back on your defense a little bit of the uh, community. Uh, while there has been talk for paper, paper, paper for many years, for a couple of decades, some of us have been trying to point out that, no, it's not enough to say paper. It's not enough to say a paper trail, a paper audit trail, that what we need is paper ballots, hand-marked paper ballots, uh, because in this uh, issue, words make a huge difference, which is why I'm so offended when I see people talking about doing risk-limiting audits you know, on on elections where I know I think to myself, oh, Philip Stark is not going to agree that this is a legitimate uh, a risk limiting audit. Uh, I've got just a, a minute or two left here, uh, Philip. Uh, what do you as an expert in these matters? You hinted at it a little bit just now, but I want to get it on record. What do you recommend as the most secure and accurate and overseeable way to both cast and count count votes count ballots well-designed hand-marked paper ballots for voters who can use them uh, a well-designed ballot marking device for voters with disabilities who need an assistive technology uh, or benefit from an assistive technology secure verifiable chain of custody of the marked paper and a risk limiting audit of every contest before certification is a risk-limiting audit, uh, a post-election risk-limiting audit, better than a full hand count of ballots that is overseeable by the public at the precinct on election night before ballots are, you know, moved back to central headquarters and so forth? First, let me let me amend my answer. I left out an important step, which is a compliance audit to make sure that the paper really is trustworthy mm-hmm. um, before you rely on it for a risk-limiting audit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a full hand count of the ballots is a risk-limiting audit. Um, it's mm-hmm. just not a very efficient risk-limiting audit. Mm-hmm. Whether you do your first count entirely by hand or your first count using optical scan, I think you still need to double-check the results, and a risk-limiting audit is a way to do that efficiently um, that does, you know, involves looking at the smallest number of ballots that give you a pre-specified confidence that looking at all of them wouldn't change the answer. Is uh, In the simplest terms possible here, uh, A, because I'm short on time, but B, because I think it does need to be simple, uh, not just for dummies like me, but because the public, I, I believe, uh, needs to actually understand this system in order to uh, to find confidence in it, which, frankly, I fear they never will. But can you very quickly explain how a risk-limited audit is supposed to work uh, when it is done properly? Well, there's a lot of different ways to do it. There's a lot of different ways to draw the sample of ballots. There's a lot of different ways to use the data that you get. But I'll, I'll talk about the simplest one, which mm-hmm. is actually the kind that was, uh, that was used in Georgia recently, which is a ballot polling audit. The basic idea is you look at randomly selected individual ballots. Now, random doesn't mean haphazard. It really means that, you know, you you have done something very precise to ensure that every ballot has the same chance of being selected. Mm -hmm. And you keep looking at more and more ballots until you see a large enough majority for the reported winners in a large enough sample that that it's sufficiently unlikely to have happened if the reported winner didn't really win. So if it had been a tie or if one of the reported losers had in fact won, seeing a sample that had that big a majority for the reported winner would have been incredibly unlikely. Mm-hmm. And, and you can stop. And if you never get to that point, you look at all the ballots, and then you have a full hand counter, and you know who won. If the paper trail was trustworthy in the first place. And, right. And presuming that it is trustworthy, what you then have is uh, essentially, ho- hopefully I'm getting this right, essentially if it's a, a closer race, uh, the closer the race, the more ballots you need to count to get to a, a scientific level of certainty or confidence. Uh, if it's a, if the initial result on an op scan is, is a blowout, then you don't necessarily need to hand count as many ballots. Am I generally characterizing that correctly? Generally, there's a little subtlety for the kind of audit I was just talking about, ballot polling. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is if the, if the true margin, not the reported margin, but if the true margin is really small, it's going to take a pretty big sample before you see mm-hmm. a large enough majority for the reported winner that it couldn't be accounted for by just the luck of the draw. And in fact, the contest outcome was a tie for, for one of the reported loser won. So there, it's just it's going to take a big sample before mm-hmm. you see a big a big enough majority for the reported winner and a big enough sample to have confidence. Yeah, and uh, if we're talking about a different kind of auditing, which is checking for error as uh-huh. opposed to just checking whether the pile of paper is consistent with the reported outcome. There, if you have a large reported margin, it would take a large amount of error to produce that large reported margin if, in fact, the outcome was a tie or somebody else had won. And so if there's a lot of error, it doesn't take a very big sample to start to see some error. And and uh, if you uh, have a very close election, you could get to a place where you have to do a complete hand count to to get that sort of certainty. Uh, last question here. Absolutely. Yeah. And let me. One yeah. other thing is that even before you even before you get there, you might get to a point where it's clearly going to be more efficient logistically to just do a full hand count than to keep sampling. And um, what, so that 
One of these days, we're going to have to uh, uh, find time to have uh, a, a more in-depth discussion specifically on the protocol, because, you know, the, one of the reasons I don't talk a lot about post-election manual audits of any time, I often refer to them as sort of random spot checks, because that seems to be how they are carried out in most places, where and if they are carried out at all. But among the reasons I don't talk, I don't talk much about it is because I don't I, I think they can be easily gamed because they are complicated. For example, even in uh, your description just now, we've got to come up with, well, what is a level of certainty? How do we get to that you know, percentage of ballots that need to be counted? Uh, and of course, within complication lies ways to cheat. And uh, frankly, I don't think folks will will actually do them at all, because I think after election night and the announcement of, uh, of winners on election night, whether they really won or not, people tend to stop paying attention. So I'll give you the last word on this for today, Philip, but uh, why am I wrong about that? Well, uh, you could be right. Under, I mean, yes, there's an opportunity to game things. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, this all needs to be done carefully. It needs to be done transparently. It needs to be done in a way that's verifiable by the public. Uh, the public needs to have enough data and understanding of what's going on to be able to tell if the audit stopped before it should have. Now, some of the methods that I've developed over the years were deliberately constructed to make the arithmetic as simple as possible so that anybody following along could check that that the calculations were done correctly, literally just like addition and subtraction, nothing more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. The random selection, I mean, somebody needs to check that the, the... uh, jurisdiction correctly implemented, you know, whatever they were supposed to implement, having the code published, having the algorithms published so that interested geeks can check uh, whether it does what it's supposed to do helps. Uh, gaming the selection of the sample, one way uh, to um, help ensure that that doesn't happen is by getting the public involved and actually generating the random numbers that, that the audit is based on. Uh, Colorado has a, a public ceremony where uh, Whoever is there at the Secretary of State's office can participate in rolling dice mm-hmm. that are used to get the whole process started. Um, so there's a lot of things that can that can be done to make the process transparent uh, and you know difficult, if not impossible, to gain. But the protocols really do need to be set up carefully. The the algorithms and code need to be public, and ideally, the comp- comp- computations need to be kept simple. Um, so that people can actually verify it without uh, relying on other software. I I think you and I agree more often than we disagree. I'm still going to have to be convinced about the efficacy of uh, post-election audits, but uh, that just gives me a reason to have you back to convince me some more. Philip B. Stark is the professor of statistics uh, and associate dean of mathematical and physical sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the inventor of the Risk Limiting Election Audit Protocol, or RL. LAs that you'll probably begin hearing more and more about in the uh, in the months ahead as we move into the 2020 election year. Uh, Philip, delighted to have you here today. Thanks for joining us, uh, and I hope you'll come back soon as we uh, as as the good guys all try to get together here and and make sense of this and you know save our democracy and stuff. Thanks so much for having me on the show. It's great to hear your voice, and I look forward to coming back. Thank you, sir. Okay, we got to get out. Oh, yes. (laughs) Uh, My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by uh, those of you kind listeners who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support what we try to do over your public airwaves every day. 
You can drop me an email if you want. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog, and that is it. Until we meet again, I am Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.